This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Right. Good to have you back. Back as part of the duet after you've been conducting various orchestras around Britain. It was a choir, not an orchestra, and it was um, very stressful and very exhilarating. I would say standing in front of the BBC singers for a live conducting performance was even tougher than being in the House of Commons facing um, Conservative backbenchers in the autumn statement. And uh, you're right, we're back. Two days running. Yesterday, a hot take on the autumn statement. And uh, now back again for our regular podcast. Got to say, though, great news this week. We found out that the 1922 committee, the Conservative backbenchers, listened to our podcast because it was reported that David Cameron went along to address the backbenchers, the new foreign secretary, and he's asked... Is George Osborne right on the podcast to say that David Cameron will have no truck with leaving the ECHR? David Cameron said, well, you know, he's a good friend of mine, George, but doesn't know everything about me. I guess I looked at this and thought the new foreign secretary, after eight years of freedom, he's now back accepting collective responsibility. He's accepted the Sunak line. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled the 1922 committee is at last listening to me. They they didn't listen to me very much when I used to speak to them directly. And of course, you know, David would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, To uh, paraphrase Lord Astor in the uh, Profumo trial. (laughs) I'm not sure totally about that parallel, but anyway. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Who was in the seat Um, having the photo taken? It's a swimming pool actually as well, Um, isn't it? Um, We'll do the Profumo scan. I once sat next to Profumo. Can you believe it? Uh, before he died. Uh, he was a very elderly man. He had done this incredible amount of good work in the East End of London after that eponymous uh, scandal in the early 1960s. I feel that you're diverting us away from the David Cameron Well, you know, I, I did see David this week. And um, for me as a friend, it's great to see him really kind of back on his game, engaged. And look, I'm sure we're going to talk about the ECHR quite a few times in the year ahead. But I would uh, observe that to lose or leave one big international organisation during a political career might be regarded as uh, misfortune. To leave two looks like uh, carelessness. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though, to have a prime minister who has chosen to have a strong-minded foreign secretary with a will of their own? Not normally, in my experience, what prime ministers want. Well, I, I, I think it's to Rishi Sunet's credit that he doesn't suffer from the tall poppy syndrome. That's, you know, you don't that you don't want other big people around you. And I thought that was a big weakness of the Boris Johnson government. It was a big weakness of Theresa May. So, you know, it points to uh, some Sunak self-confidence, although they probably need to uh, organise better the uh, order in which they inspect troops because people have seen these pictures of uh, the South Korean president being um, welcomed in Britain and looking at a guard of honour and David Cameron looked like he was the prime minister and Rishi Sunak was uh, chasing his tail. But I don't think, uh, to be honest, I don't think Rishi... <laughs> Shuffling behind. I don't think Rishi will be too worried about that. I think everyone knows he's the prime minister. And if you're in number 10 Downing Street, you're always very aware who the prime minister is. Look, Rishi Sunak has got used to the idea that everybody is a tall poppy compared to him, hasn't he? Well, we're not going to do heightest jokes on here. That's b- way below us. This this podcast is much more highbrow. Get on to the autumn statement. Right, yes, yeah, so today we, we did do a hot take yesterday. Uh, so we gave our immediate reaction just within an hour of 
uh, Jeremy Hunt delivering his statement. Today, we're going to unpack that autumn statement a bit more. We're going to look at the tax decisions, the spending decisions, and the big, big questions now facing Labour's shadow chancellor and shadow cabinet. And then we're going to talk about migration because the numbers are out today. And uh, once again, a very, very large number of migrants coming into our country over the last year. And we're not just talking here about illegal migration, people coming on boats or asylum seekers. We're talking about the hundreds of thousands of people coming here legally every year to to work in our country or to, to study. What is going on? Why is it happening? And what is the politics of migration in Britain in election year? And what is the politics of migration abroad? Because we are also going to have a look at the Dutch election, which happened, uh, the results came overnight. Uh, And there, Gert Wilders, the kind of Nigel Farage-like character of Dutch politics, who's been around for many, many years, won those elections. Doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a prime minister because they have a PR system. Uh, We're going to discuss that. We're going to see what the impact of immigration is on all of these uh, European uh, political systems at the moment and have a little bit of a look across the Atlantic, across the South Atlantic to Argentina, where a pretty extraordinary character uh, has just got elected as president of Argentina. It's true. We were saying on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, populism on the wane and then in the Netherlands and Argentina, the populists are triumphing. So we're going to have to sort of have a little bit of, you know, sackcloth and ashes as we as as we reflect upon that. But let's start with the autumn statement. We did our hot take yesterday and um, we won't repeat all of that. You should go and, and listen to it if you kind of want to have our initial reaction. Of course, we were saying very political move to um, have a 2p cut in national insurance for employees and then debating the fact that that was happening at a time when because of the restriction of personal allowances, actually the tax burden is rising year after year in the next parliament. And I was looking at the newspapers uh, this morning, because of course, if you're a chancellor, shadow chancellor, you judge this on the questions you get on the Today programme and what the newspapers do the next day. They start to tell you the direction things are going to go in. And if you're the chancellor and all the newspapers are agreed, booming Britain, then that's a triumph. And if all the newspapers are agreed, Britain in chaos, that's a disaster. But sometimes you have a big divide. And we saw that today. So you have um, the Conservative supporting newspapers like the Mail, the Express, the Sun, actually the Times saying Hunt eases tax burden. And on the other hand, you have um, the Financial Times, tax burden surges despite Hunt cuts, the same in the Independent and in the Guardian. And that sort of goes to the heart of the politics of this. Can Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak win the argument that they are cutting taxes going into a year when the Office of Budget Responsibility says taxes are going up and the economy is going to be slowing? In fact, living standards are falling. How do you think Jeremy Hunt will feel he's landed on day one? So I think he'll be feeling pretty good about himself and his autumn statement because you know he wanted to deliver a message that the tax cuts are now starting to come under the Conservatives. And he wanted to do it against an autumn statement that had a lot of substance in it on business and enterprise, including a large uh, tax cut for firms that invest, that he will know was not particularly politically sexy, but he wants to do as chancellor. So I think he would have looked at the headlines, he would have looked at the reaction he got from the 1922 committee when he went and spoke to them and be pretty pleased about that, he'll perhaps, you know, begin to be thinking, you know, I don't want to be overselling this tax cut because taxes are going up. 
for many people because the various thresholds which you pay, income tax have been frozen. And quite a lot of the headlines, even in the supportive newspapers, did uh, point that out. Um, I thought, you know, if you listen to this clip on the Today program, this is uh, Jeremy Hunt's interview, uh, I think it sort of sums up the, the the hardest questions he's getting. But these are questions really about the fo- you know how the budget was presented or the autumn statement was presented. It's not like any particular measure in the autumn statement is unravelling, which is what you really don't want to have the day after if you're the Chancellor. So the Conservative Party has adverts today saying it's the biggest tax cut ever. Can we just agree that that is fundamentally dishonest at a time that the tax take in this country is officially, it's not disputable, going up, not down? Um, I fundamentally disagree with that, with what you just said, Nick, and I'll tell you why. It was right to um, help families with things like the furlough scheme that protected 9 million jobs, to help families in uh, the biggest cost of living crisis caused by an energy shock since the 1970s. Uh, yes, taxes have had to go up so we can pay down those, those COVID debts. Um, but yesterday, I did make a start in bringing down the tax burden. I've never said that we were going to get there all in one go. So here he's being pinned on the fact that the tax burden is continuing to rise. And I think a big test for the next year is, can the Labour Party find individuals who are seeing their own personal income taxes, by which I mean their national insurance and their income tax, go up and look in their payback and say, well, hold on, I thought I was being given a tax cut. And in fact, my taxes are going up. And as you know, it's quite a complicated picture because for some people, their taxes will be going down as a result of the statement, for some be going up. So I think that's what, you know, if I was doing my old job as shadow charts that I'd be looking for. But, you know, I've got a, an interesting question for you, which is, Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, who I didn't think had the best of days yesterday. I don't think she quite kind of landed the big punch uh, that she would have wanted to on the day. And the reason she didn't do that was because she basically accepted all the things in the autumn statement. And do you think she was she had no option but to accept the national insurance cut? Obviously, you don't really want to oppose that. But then she also accepted this very expensive business tax change. So Labour, it's quite hard to say the Tories are screwing up the economy, but I'm accepting everything you've just announced. Well, I don't think she um, wants to be against a tax cut for working people. In fact, you know, we debated a few weeks ago whether she was right to oppose the Rishi Sunak rise in national insurance. And she wants um, to be backing a growth plan. And I think we all think that the reforms on the corporate tax side are going to be good for the economy rather than bad. So she's not going to oppose that either. She doesn't want to walk into any immediate traps. There is an issue about taxes and the tax burden. I mean, I would expect after the Institute of Fiscal Studies today, the Times will do a little bit of rebalancing. Already on their website, they're saying taxpayers will be £1,900 worse off by next election, says think tank. The Times won't stay on the, they've cut taxes when they're going up position. But there's a broader point, which is about how the economic mood is going to be in the next year. On the Today programme, the first thing Jeremy Hunt said when asked how had he cut taxes, he said because the economy has outperformed all expectations. And I think for lots of people in the country, looking at their own lives, seeing the fact their living standards are going down, that their bills have gone up. We now know the floor for energy bills is going to rise as a result of what's happened to wholesale prices announced uh, today. We know that the Office of Budget Responsibility says next year, not only is the economy going to be weaker, but living standards for individuals will go down. 
And there's a real dilemma here for the Conservatives. If they're saying we're succeeding, it's doing better, and people think, yeah, but not in my life, not for my business. They're doing the classic, you know, we've taken some hard decisions, the plan is starting to work, but the job's not yet done. And that, you know, they are back to where I think they should always have been, which is we've got a plan, we're seeing through the plan, it's starting to work. They're, they're, They're the better the devil you know candidate. It's a dilemma you and I have both faced, because we both were shadow chancellor, that you don't want to give ammunition to the, your opponents by opposing some popular tax change. Although David Cameron and I took the very big decision to oppose Alistair Darling's cut in VAT, which obviously was popular at the time of the, of the financial crash. You know, it's quite difficult, as the opposition say, we're not agreeing with this tax cut. We took that to show we were serious, that we had an alternative plan, that we you know, we weren't going to be the same. I just think there's a risk for Labour that, you know, they're playing it very sort of tactically smart and not opening up any flanks, not opposing any tax cut the Tories announced. But it does sort of then beg the question, why would you be any different? And I just think they're going to have to think about that position over the next few months, or else what's sort of tactically smart can look a bit strategically dumb. Doesn't this all come back to the real elephant in the room? in the autumn statement, which is what's happening to public spending. And that is, I think, where... Barely mentioned. Barely mentioned by the Chancellor at the autumn statement. But it will be a very big deal in the analysis over the next couple of days. Because if you look at what happened yesterday, all the benefits from higher inflation have been taken and spent. You should explain to people what the... Because most people will listen to you and say, the benefits of higher inflation, what do you mean? Well, because inflation has been higher, that means wages have gone up more. And wages being higher means that people pay more income tax because you know their earnings are higher. Now, the fact that um, wages haven't been gone going up as much as um, inflation means that actually people will feel worse off because the prices of goods they're paying for are higher as well. But for the Treasury, that brings in lots more tax revenue over the coming uh, years. But on the other side of the ledger, if inflation is high and wages have gone up, that also means that... Um, public spending is lower in real terms. There's less money um, for the National Health Service given higher wages or higher costs of drugs. And um, over the next few years, while the Chancellor has used the benefits from higher inflation to cut taxes, he's done nothing about the squeeze on public spending. So if you take out the National Health Service and international aid and defence, other budgets, other public services will see real terms cuts now in the next four or five years. And let's be honest, George, neither of us think that is deliverable. I mean, it's not sustainable. It's not going to happen. And the question is, who's going to face up to that? And that is something that the government won't talk about. It's something the Office of Budget Responsibility did talk about, but there's only so far they can make that argument. And for Labour, it poses a real dilemma. So I think spending decisions are you know, often the, the most difficult for an opposition as well as a government. And the government sets the baseline. So the government says, you know, the budget for the Justice Department next year is going to be £10 billion or the budget for the Environment Department is going to be £5 billion. And if if the opposition wants to challenge that, if it wants to say, well, we're not spending enough on our courts or our environment, they've got to somehow show the world how they would pay for that extra money. And it's a, it's quite an unfair test because – as we've just seen in an autumn statement, you can have within the space of a year a Conservative government raising national insurance and then cutting national insurance. But you know, the, everyone just focuses on the now with the government. 
Whereas for an opposition, it's, you know, they are hemmed in. And, it, you know, my career, I was the shadow chief secretary in one election, the shadow chancellor in another election, chancellor in uh, an election after that. That challenge now, I think for the conservatives, it's straightforward. It's, these are our spending plans. And people will start to look through it and say, my God, they're actually going to cut the arts budget, the environment budget, the justice budget, the, which is the prisons and so on. Because, as you say, their health service and um, defense and aid is going up. But for Labour, they've basically got to go along with these numbers, haven't they? Well, that is the reality, because um, if they say we're going to spend more, then the question is, well, so which tax rise are you going to put in place to pay for that? And that's the last thing Rachel Rees wants to do. She wants at the moment to be saying that she wants to ease the tax burden for working people. She'll point out, as she did on the Today programme, that she is talking about more money from changing the tax regime for the richest people like the non-domicile regime, put that into the health service. That's right, but it's quite a small amount of, uh, of, of money. And then she then goes back to where you always go to an opposition. You say, well, the fundamental reason why taxes have gone up the fundamental reason why public spending is so under pressure is because the economy is growing so slowly. And as a, a consequence, we're in trouble. So let us double down on making the economy grow more strongly. As Nick Robinson said to her today, though, that's quite challenging. I have announced some targeted tax loophole closures to put money into our frontline public services right now. But you need but to find another end, £19 billion. Pounds. And we've got to grow the economy to be able to do that. And that's why the number one mission of an incoming Labour government, as Keir Starmer has set out, is to grow our economy. Yes, because but you know that economies don't grow overnight. They take time. If you're successful, you might grow up by the end of a period in government and, and ask for a second well, term. If, if, you will face... Big cuts, dramatic cuts. She doesn't want to fight the next election saying she's raising taxes. She does want to say we'll make the economy grow more strongly, but she's got to set out more detail of that plan. I think she doesn't want to um, be saying she's going to borrow more now because Jeremy Hunt has gone up to the pretty much the limit. Which, which term, we predicted. Which we predicted. A couple of a weeks couple ago, we said, you know, any chancellor at this point uses all of the available headroom so the shadow chancellor can't grab it either for tax cuts or spending increases. But I think the one thing she's got to do is start preparing the ground for the challenges that she will face because, you know, this is pretty scorched earth. And if Labour wins and come into the Treasury and look at those public spending plans for policing, for prisons, for social care, actually even for the National Health Service. I was, by the way, really surprised the government didn't put more money into the National Health Service in election year. I would have done and I advised them to do that a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this. She's got to prepare the ground and she's got to start saying, well, we'll have to open the books. We'll have to see how bad it is. You can't really trust what they are actually telling you. Let's wait and see how bad it is going to be because there's going to be some very, very difficult decisions to to come and um, she needs to start preparing that ground. I mean, I, I, when I was the Shadow Chancellor, I originally said I was going to match Labour spending plans because I didn't want to rerun the 2005 election where we got killed because on the claim that we were going to... Those were the spending spend. plans which you said were irresponsibly large in retrospect. Because by the time I got then to the 2010 election, I did want the freedom to do that and went into the election saying we were going to spend £6 billion less I mean, I would make a kind of maybe just to sort of conclude with this observation. I think Jeremy Hunt is returning to a more classic conservatism that I would be much more comfortable and familiar with, which is public expenditure is held down, taxes are reduced, 
And there are a whole set of supply-side measures to try and boost business and enterprise. That is very, very different from the Boris Johnson conservatism, where the central pledges were, we're going to spend money on schools and hospitals and extra police officers and so on. It's much more the Jeremy Hunt I know. It's actually more of the Rishi Sunak I think we always thought was there, which is the small state conservative. And running as a small state conservative has big advantages. It poses challenges to the Labour opposition. Do they match that in the coming years? Uh, But it, of course, also means that the more kind of classic political background opens up one that you and I would have been familiar with over our careers. So the Office of National Statistics has just released its annual migration stats, and they show us that in the year to date, or the year to June this year, 672,000 people net came into the country. And that means that 1.2 million people arrived and about half a million people left. So the population's gone up uh, by 672,000 immigrants. And that is a very big number. It is slightly lower, as it happens, than uh, the most recent figures tell us immigration was by the end of last year. So although the headline is a very big number, it's double the number that was uh, coming into the country, the number of migrants coming into the country at the time of the Brexit referendum, when, of course, immigration was a very big issue. But I think if you were in the government, you'd be thinking, all right, well, we've begun to turn a corner. The numbers are starting to fall slightly. But it's still way higher than people assumed was going to be the case if we had Brexit and way higher than the Conservatives promised in the last general election. In the Office for Budget Responsibility report yesterday, they say that they think migration uh, comes down to around 250,000 in a few years' time. But in the short term, they've revised up the number by 100,000. Of course, that's good news for the Treasury, because more migration means more people working and paying tax, which means that it boosts um, the public finances. Um, But the expectation is it comes down Partly, we had a good question, Ed. I'm going to interrupt you just for a moment because uh, you know the Treasury and economists take the view that immigration is good for the economy and it adds to GDP. But we did have this interesting question from Toby, who asked us this. So often we are told that our economy needs migrants, and yet when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, you didn't really hear people saying that. So my question is, what's changed? So I would point to a couple of things. Uh, You may add to this. First of all, there was quite a big demographic bulge in the 1980s and 90s. It was the shadow of the baby boomers. It was the children of the baby boomers. It was basically you and me. And uh, that means there were were a lot of Brits coming into the workforce at that time. We don't have that today. And the other thing was there was structural unemployment. Uh, You know, remember growing up, the big issue in politics was 10% unemployment, 3 million people unemployed. So the economy didn't have the jobs to absorb all those migrants. So things have changed now. There's very low unemployment. And so there's lots of job vacancies. And there's not that demographic push from the population here in Britain. You're totally right. In the 1980s, it was a policy decision to crush inflation, maybe to crush the trade unions as well, through mass unemployment. That was the consequence of the tight policy of the early 1980s at that time. Nobody was saying, we're short of workers, let's get people to come from abroad. People were saying, we've got huge numbers of people, 25% 
of young people unemployed for over six months. So that was a particular time. But in the 50s, 60s, big migration into our country. And we're seeing the same thing again now. And if you look at the figures announced today, it's partly one-offs. So big rise in people coming from Hong Kong, big rise in people coming from Ukraine in they the were last both, couple of years. Those are both political decisions political. To, to allow people in from Hong Kong because of China's greater control over Hong Kong and because of the Ukraine war allowing Ukrainians to come to Britain. But what is really striking, why are these numbers so much higher than in 2016? It's partly because there's been a big surge in university students coming to study, not from the European Union anymore, particularly from India and Nigeria, who've brought huge numbers of dependents, something the government is now trying to restrict. And the second thing is a big rise in work visas. And if you look at the numbers, a huge rise in people getting visas for shortage occupations, in particular in social care. I think over the last two or three years, the number of people getting visas to come and work in social care have gone up from about 3,000 to 100,000. Basically, since the pandemic, huge shortages of nurses and care workers People running care homes can't get staff in Britain. And the government decided, quite controversially actually, to allow a lot of care workers to come from around the world to work in Britain. If not, who would be running our care system? But the irony is, we had a referendum in 2016 in which the Brexiteers, including Rishi Sunak, said, vote for Brexit, we'll take back control. And since then, net migration's doubled. Well, I think this goes to uh, you know one of the great sort of paradoxes of the Brexit campaign. The leaders of Brexit uh, and people like Rishi Sunak, who were Brexit supporters, they they represented a very small group who thought that Brexit was really an opportunity to have a more liberal, more open, more capitalist economy to free themselves from EU red tape. And they would say, by the way, if we get to control immigration, we can actually bring more people into the country, and that's a good thing, right? And I'm by the way, I'm also pro-immigration. But of course, they won that campaign by uh, creating a link between issues of sovereignty, who was in control of the country, and borders, uh, with that famous slogan, take back control. And the vast majority of people who voted Brexit were voting for less migrants, fewer migrants to come into the country. And I think they would be surprised to know that since voting for Brexit, the number of people coming into the country has doubled. I have to say, I find this quite a difficult topic politically because my sympathies are all for pro-immigration. I think it brings diversity to our country. It means we don't have the debate they're having in places like Japan about a shrinking population. Um, it's make our economy more productive. But you know, I am very acutely aware that that's not where a lot of the instincts of the country are. And I've always thought it interesting in my encounters with you that you take a more kind of classically, I don't want to say right wing because I don't think it's fair, but sort of more sceptical of immigration view. And that might be informed by the fact, you know, you were fighting a constituency in West Yorkshire where immigration was a big issue. The BMP, I think, had the biggest local party of any constituency. And so I'm always a bit nervous that my political instincts on this aren't quite right. I think like you, Immigration has been a huge benefit to our economy and society over over hundreds of years. In the end, that's why we all arrived in this country. And, you know, the 80s were an aberration, an unusual period when you didn't have the need for change and skill and people coming to, to work here. But the thing I learned in Morley and Outwood in that constituency was, one, you've got to talk about it. And you've got to explain why you're doing 
what you're doing. And then secondly, you've got to show that you've got a grip, that it is under control. And I think um, we got into terrible trouble, the Labour government, in the 2000s, because um, you know, back in 2004, we made a decision not to... Um, to have controls on migration from Eastern Europe when those accession countries came into the EU. That was different from most other European countries who did have controls. And that was partly the Foreign Office thinking, you know, we should back enlargement. And Tony Blair wanted like a pro-European signal, um, given we weren't joining the Euro. But fundamentally, it was because we thought the numbers of people who had come would be tiny. And it turned out that wasn't true. And actually, there was a big surge in migration in the late 2000s, particularly from Eastern Europe. And people weren't prepared and they weren't ready for that. And it was destabilising. And what I found in Morley and Outward, because as you say, BMP were strong, but um, obviously were a small minority. I did lots of public meetings. I must have done 40 or 50 open meetings where anybody could come to talk about immigration. At the time, this was really controversial. Only John Crudders was really doing this in Barking and Dagenham because most people said, don't talk about it. It's actually better to kind of try and just not make it an issue. And my judgment was, if I didn't talk about it, this would be a problem. And what you found in a public meeting would be, there would be a small percentage of people, say there's 150 people there, there'd be three or four people who thought, shut the borders, we don't need migration. And there would be maybe one or two people in Morley and Outwood, rather more if you did it in a city centre, who would say, no, 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 free movement's really good for us, you know, get people in, it's kind of good for our economy and society. Most people were in the middle and they said, look, of course we need people to work here, but it's got to be managed, it's got to be controlled, you've got to get a grip, you've got to show that we are controlling the numbers coming and that we're putting in place the public services to support people. And they felt that it was out of control. And it goes to that word, free movement. The problem with free movement, it sounded like a free-for-all, a free market, out of control, and people wanted it to be to be gripped. And I think the trouble politically amongst Labour and then under the Conservatives, under you and David Cameron, we didn't grip it. And that's where the backlash came but from. But when you say grip, you see, I, I, I completely agree with you that if people see scenes of, uh, you know, boats landing on the shores of Kent and lots of people jumping out and that looks like no one's in charge or people crawling out of lorries that have gone through the Channel Tunnel. Yeah. But is it, isn't it saying, you know, I just want uh, immigration to be controlled and gripped and, I, you know, and I'm worried about pressure on local services. I'm not anti-immigrant. Isn't that really just sort of, you know, an excuse for saying you don't want immigration? Because we do control immigration now. And we make conscious decisions. This is a Brexit government that says we want more people coming in to help in the care homes. Remember the old argument, we we're going to train up Brits to do that kind of work? Well, now we now this government have said, well, many more people in the care homes. We want people coming to fill other jobs in our economy. Our universities benefit from the income that foreign students bring. And by the way, it's a good thing for Britain that people have had the experience of studying here. Uh, other bits of immigration you can hardly control. The, the courts have set all sorts of rules about family dependence. So if you say you're going to control and reduce immigration, what are you going to do? Fewer people working in care homes, fewer people in IT jobs in the economy that need being filled, fewer students at universities, with all that means for university incomes. So I, it, it, for me, it's a kind of not addressing the heart of the issue, which is how many people do you want coming into this country? And pretending it's really about process, about how that decision's made. Because when you actually get to the hard decisions of, do you want these people in? Even a Brexit-y Tory government says, yes, please. 
Look, if Rishi Sunak and before him Boris Johnson, they were saying, we want 650,000 people to come to our country because we need them for our universities and for our care homes. If they were saying that, well, that would be the debate. But they weren't saying that. In fact, they were saying, all those people, we're going to get the numbers down by voting for Brexit. And so the sense that it's not in control is why this is a problem for um, the government at the moment. That's why they're saying, no, 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 but we're restricting dependence and therefore the numbers are going to come down and there are one-off uh, factors. If you go back to 2009-10, when um, you were working out the manifesto to try and beat Labour and throw us out of power after 13 years, you and David Cameron came up with a, a plan, which was to say... We're going to get migration down, net migration, the legal migration, not asylum seekers, down to the tens of thousands. And you decided to say that, I think, because you felt you needed to show we were going to grip and manage this, that it wasn't going to be a free-for-all. And part of the problem we then faced between then and 2016 is you didn't get it down to the tens of thousands. And people thought, well, they told us they were managing it, and they're not. And that partly paved the way for the Brexit vote. Well... It's an interesting story of British politics over the last 20 years. The 2005 election, Michael Howard went on and on about immigration. And ultimately, I think it contributed to the failure of the Conservatives in that campaign. And Tony Blair very neatly kind of pricked the uh, the bubble uh, with a good speech on Dover, which says, of course, it's an, an important issue, asylum seekers, which was the hot topic at the time. But we're dealing with it. And David Cameron and I, we become part of the Tory leadership afterwards. And we're saying we're not going to be the immigration people. We're not going to repeat Michael Howard's campaign. And when David said, let's get immigration down to the tens of thousands, he thought that was actually quite a moderate thing to say and parking the issue because immigration had been in the tens of thousands for many, many years. There had been a recent uptick. And we thought that was because of the financial crash and people from Ireland to come to Britain because of what had happened in the Irish economy, people from Greece and Portugal. But of course, it's stuck. I think the clue was already there that simmering beneath this uh, sort of political agreement, not really to talk about immigration on both sides, there was a lot of public discontent. And in looking back on it, I don't think I saw this at the time, when Mrs. Duffy confronts Gordon Brown in Rochdale, the whole political world goes, you know, it gets excited about Gordon Brown's reaction without really paying attention to what Mrs. Duffy herself is saying. It's, yeah, six months. You, you, you at six can't months. say anything about the immigrants because you're saying that you're you're. Uh, no. you, but all these Eastern Europeans what are coming in? Where uh, are they flocking well, from? A million people come from Europe, but a million people, British people, have gone into Europe. You know, you do know. There's a lot of British people staying in Europe as well. Look, come back to what you. Oh, everything. She's just a soft, bigoted woman. I said she used to be late. I mean, it's ridiculous. It was a terrible moment. Um, for explain to people. Who won't remember? He had been mic'd up, hadn't he, by Sky News, and he got in the car after dealing with meeting this woman, and then he had to go to her house to apologise. He did. He didn't. He didn't um, know he had the microphone on or had forgotten, and then it's replayed to him in a t in a in a radio studio just um, an hour or so later. The problem was that she was not a bigoted woman. I mean, I had spoken in Morley Outward to 
scores, hundreds of Mrs. Duffy's. And Mrs. Duffy was not somebody who thought, you know, she wasn't racist. She didn't want to shut the borders. She wasn't anti-immigrant. She just wanted to know that the government was managing it, that they, that they had a plan. And the dismissal of somebody who says, I'm worried about the scale and pace of immigration as racist and therefore, you know, not to be um, taken seriously is where the problem comes from. And I, look, the reality was you learned that. By the time you got to 2015 uh, in your manifesto, after you'd made a commitment to have a referendum on the European Union, you, David Cameron, said, I'm going to go and get a deal with our European Union partners to control migration better to to have some constraints on free movement. And I think that was the right thing to do myself. I always worried as Europe got larger that we weren't going to be able to make free movement work for a union of a enlarging scale. And the things he was talking about were the right things to go in after. But unfortunately, he didn't get what he set out to get in terms of reform and change. Then you had a referendum anyway you didn't talk about migration much in the campaign because you thought we could win the referendum on the economic risk of leaving the European Union. And I think that was a big risk and I was agreeing with you. But I tell you, loads of people across the country thought, I know but what I'm worried about is migration and immigration and free movement. And if they're not talking about it, then they're not letting me in on what's really going on. And it was that sort of worry and that denial which fed the... Um, Brexit vote, which no, is why it's so ironic we're in the position we're in now. I remember you phoning me a week or two before that referendum and saying, you know, all of us on the Remain side need to be talking about immigration more. You know, I fast forward to today, where you've now got twice as many people as back then coming in, over 600,000 people. And you've got people in the Conservative Party saying that's way too many. We've got Sweller Bravman in a resignation letter recently saying that it's got to be cut. But I come back to the central question, which I think faces both the Conservatives and will face Labour if they're in government, which is, OK, fine. So what? You want fewer people working in the care homes. You want fewer people working in the economy. You want fewer students at universities. No government has ever been prepared to say yes to those things. And so either you need to level with the public that these levels of immigration are good for Britain, good for the economy, good for local economies too – good for schools, good for hospitals, because by the way, they're providing a lot of the staff who work in these institutions. Either we all need to level up and say, look, I'm sorry, you know, I disagree with you, uh, a voter. This is a good thing and we're going to explain why. Or we're going to have to come up with some radically different plan to run our country and run our economy. Look, I agree. And that is why you've got to own it as a government. You can say right now, there are some particular one-offs around Hong Kong and Ukraine and but they will go down. You can say, though, it's good to have students come, although there is going to be restrictions on dependence. But you have to level with people. If you think the right thing to do is to have lots and lots of people coming from abroad to do low-paid jobs, which British people aren't taking, you've got to say that. And if you don't want to have those numbers coming, then what you've got to do is increase the pay of care home staff. But if you say, well, you know, we're not going to increase the pay of care home staff and not quite sure why this has happened and I'm really worried about it and why are these numbers so big and what's gone there on. Even if we, you increase we, the pay of care home staff, there would not be enough people in Britain who want to do those jobs. So we've got almost full employment. You know, we've got, we've got unemployment is the lowest it has been in our lifetimes. 
So it's not that there are a load of Brits. I mean, there's a big issue, which we can come back to, which you actually mentioned in the hot take episode of people on disability benefits, people on various sickness benefits. Uh, so there are a lot of Brits who aren't working, but they're not in the workplace looking for jobs in care homes. Yeah, but if you look across the economy, why is it the case that we've got a shortage occupation called care home workers, but we haven't got a shortage occupation of retail workers? And the answer is because if you go and work in a care home, a very, very difficult, sensitive job, you get paid less than if you go and work in retail. And if you don't face up to that, then, okay, you then have to say, we're going to do it by migration from abroad. But you've got to be honest. If people think you're not being honest, if people think that you are not facing up to it, if you're not talking about it, if they feel as though you've lost control, you're out of control, that is when you lose the immigration argument. And that is the danger for the government at the moment. So my view is, you know, take back control, get a grip, own the system. And if you think these numbers are too high, do something about it. Well, of course, it's not just Britain that is facing this issue. And now let's look at a really interesting election that's happened this week, which is all about immigration and asylum seekers. And that's the Dutch general election, where Gert Wilders, the leader of the far right party, has won on the popular vote. We'll be back. Yesterday was Autumn Statement Day, but it was also over the channel, the Dutch general election. And uh, the results have been rather striking. We were saying on our podcast a few weeks ago that populism was in retreat. And then Argentina Monday, the Netherlands yesterday, the opposite seems to be happening. Yeah. So Gert Wilders, who many people will have noticed, is the guy with a big shock of hair, has been in Dutch politics for many years. He was on the far right. But in the last few weeks, literally, he's moved away from his position of banning the Koran, banning mosques in the Netherlands, uh, said he would be the prime minister for everyone. And he's got the largest number of seats as a result of this election. It's a big, big shock to the European Union, big shock in the Netherlands, which, of course, is famously that kind of most progressive of countries. And there's always been, you know, Holland, I think, has always sort of tested this idea. Hold on. How can you be socially liberal if you also allow people who have very strict religious views, you know, uh, Islamic views, that's been challenged by these sort of radical figures. Wilders does it in a pretty crude way, um, but now may well be the prime minister of the Netherlands and replaces, it's a big, big change if he does become prime minister, uh, replaces Mark Rutter, who was the most sort of plain vanilla, very pleasant, used to be in the HR department of Unilever and uh, you know, could have been a character in the office. And, uh, you know, very nice to deal with. Bit of the sort of Nick Clegg of uh, of Dutch politics, but that's being a bit unfair to President Clegg. And um, now we're going to deal with Wilders. But we don't know if he's going to become the prime minister. I mean, the interesting thing was that the replacement um, as leader of the centre-right party, Dan Yezlogov, was a Turkish migrant, but she took a very hard line on asylum and immigration. I was just reading an interview she did a couple of weeks ago, she said there's an influx of too many people, not only asylum seekers, but also migrant workers and, and international students, which means we don't have the capacity to help real refugees. So she said the government of which she had been part, she was now the leader of the main party, had lost control on asylum and immigration. And she didn't get thanked for that. In fact, her party came um, third or fourth. And Wilders, the outsider, the populist one, very interesting guy because he, uh, he, as you said, he's been around a very long time, was very f- kind of famous for being very anti-Islam, uh, also very anti the European Union. But he's he survived, he kind of tempered his anti-Europeanism a little bit, saw off um, 
a big far-right threat to him, a guy called Thierry Badet, um, who ended up becoming like a conspiracy theorist and his party kind of waned. But he's now leader of the biggest party. It doesn't mean he's going to be the prime minister. It's a good Advocates of PR better pay attention to this. It doesn't mean he's going to be the next prime minister, although... If you're a populist leader, you get your oxygen from being seen as the outsider and being badly treated. And for the other parties, if they look like they are dismissing the guy whose party won the most seats and don't want to go into coalition with him, that kind of gives him potentially an even bigger platform for the future. But of course, you know, the obvious parallel is Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage has also been around a long time, at times tempered his extremism, not quite as much as Wilders mainly. Nigel Farage has never been a member of um, Parliament here in the UK. Um, His party has tried repeatedly to break through and always failed. As you said, in um, a proportional representation system, you can do that. In a first-past-the-post system like we have, where does the um, Geert Wilders figure end up? In the jungle, eating camel's penises rather than potentially becoming <laughs> the next prime minister. I'm, I'm just saying that's what you're doing. Rather than, you know, a, a penis pizza, um, rather than becoming the next leader of the, you know, the... I didn't um, know you'd be able to get Nigel Farage and Dix in uh, one sentence. Well, there we but are. There you go. But, but, that, but that is the difference in the political systems. And, you know, if we had PR, we might have had Prime Minister Farage. Certainly his party at certain points in the last 20 years could have competed to be the biggest party. And instead, he's, um, you know, being dunked in rat's urine. Yeah. We don't actually know what's going to happen in terms of the formation of the government in the Netherlands. And it, it could, could take them a hugely long time. I mean, it, you know, one of the great things, having been involved in the only coalition talks in modern British history, is we managed to do it in five days. And I think in the last time they had this in the Netherlands, it took 150 days. So um, I don't, you know, don't don't watch this screen yet for any great outcome from the Dutch election. But it is a sign, I think, that all these European countries are wrestling with the same issue we've just been talking about for the UK. You know, in Italy, a far-right government was elected, although in practice in office, they've turned out to be more moderate. Um, it's been an issue in Germany. There's a big question. You know, Will the European Union do what it refused to do in 2016, which is make some adjustment to free movement, which is what David Cameron and myself and others would dearly have liked to help us win that Brexit referendum. Will they now, when core countries of the EU, the founding members of the EU, like the Netherlands uh, and indeed France, you know, are really struggling with this issue, are they going to make changes? People who have been at the centre of the European Union for decades will say Schengen free movement is at the absolute core of what it is to be European to be a member of the European Union. But in the Netherlands, in Italy, in parties in Germany, parties in Spain, you know, potentially the next president of France, if Le Pen was to win, all take a very different view. If mainstream politics doesn't address this properly and sensibly, then the extremes are going to do so. And that's very dangerous. Yeah, I think to be fair to the pro-Europeans, they'd say, Often the issue here is immigration from outside the EU. But free movement means once you're inside the EU, you can move up quickly. But in 2016, it was free movement within the European Union, which causes the trouble. I think for Britain, the issue was people from Eastern Europe coming. Uh, We should just mention, while we're on kind of extraordinary characters, the uh, new president of Argentina, Javier Milia, I think that's the right way to pronounce his name, um, who is nicknamed by his opponents El Loco, the madman. And I couldn't help noticing... 
that one of his central pledges, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, is to blow up the central bank. I don't think Andrew Bailey would enjoy that. It's true. And he's also very, very restrictive socially, kind of um, very hardline anti-abortion. But when you look at the Vox Pops in Argentina, this is a country which has had so many crises and huge levels of inflation and kind of massive um, failures of kind of the public realm to deliver good governance. And everybody was saying, look, it's been so bad, time for a change. And if you can be the populist guy who gets attention in a low turnout election by saying, you know, I'm just going to change things. I'm going to blow up the central bank. Some people will think, you know, roll the dice. Well, when the inflation's running at over 100%, he actually says he's going to introduce the US dollar as the currency there. Yeah, was Even harder than the SNP trying to run their economy with the pound. There was a good moment, by the way, when he was thanking various world leaders and foreign statesmen who congratulated him on his election. And he thanked our new foreign secretary, James Cameron. Uh, <laughs> James Cameron being, of course, the director of the Titanic rather than uh, my friend David. Yes, I think we just have to show some humility, George. You know, at the moment, the populist threat is not receded. And it's not just Donald Trump um, who looks like he's surging in the polls in the Netherlands and in Argentina. They've surged. On to questions. Um, thanks for sending them in. We do love reading them, so do keep sending them to us at questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. First one we've got is from James, who, who asks, I wanted to ask you both your thoughts on the loss of the personal allowance for those earning above £100,000. Do you think that's now a counterproductive tax that's holding back the UK jobs market? George? Well, this was a decision, in fact, taken by Alistair Darling just before I became Chancellor. Uh, so once you're earning over £100,000, you no longer get any of your income tax-free. Fairly perverse effect for people earning, last time I looked at this, figures might have changed a bit, between about one hundred and £120,000 when their tax rate can be up into the sort of 60s or 70s percent. There's also the withdrawal of child benefit also contributes to that. I remember looking at this, you know, on various budgets, should I unwind what Alistair Darling had done on a chart? It looks, you know, like a real anomaly, you know, a classic conservative view would discourage his enterprise. But in practice, it's a pretty expensive thing to reverse. Quite difficult to reinstate the personal allowance for pretty wealthy earners. And there's no evidence it stops people on £110,000, you know, trying to get a £10,000 pay rise, frankly. Of course, as a result of Autumn's statement yesterday, there's going to be more people in this particular situation. Three million more people will be paying the higher rate of income tax, but 400,000 more paying the supplementary tax. So it'll be a bigger issue. But That's the, the 45p rate. Yeah. yeah. But I think you are right that if you look at work incentives for a single mother deciding whether to go from part-time to full-time work, or for somebody in unemployment deciding to go out to work or not, whether or not they'll be better off and those um, marginal incentives, you know, the extra money you'll gain from going out to work are really, really important. And that's where high withdrawal rates can make a real difference. I think the international evidence is if you start looking at people earning over 100000 much less clear that it uh, makes a the headline big rates can make it. You know, I think the 50p rate was a deterrent in Britain and indeed in France when the uh, last French president Francois Hollande had a high rate of tax. It was a, it, it was a disincentive. Here, the, the the exchequer's benefiting from a lot of 
you know, opacity is bloody hard to work out what your tax rate is if you're on 100. Even though it's higher than 50%. Even though it's higher. There we are. Um, that is our answer to James. And now we're going to cross the pond to Evan, who's got a question for us. Hi, Ed and George. As an American, I've always been fascinated by the back and forth banter that goes on in the House. What were your favorite moments of political banter in the House of Commons? My odds on favorite is when David Cameron said, we have a new hand gesture from the shadow chancellor. Love the pod and keep up the good work. Your friend, Evan. <laughs> Thank you. This was because um, Ed used to kind of maniacally uh, kind of when the economy was, he claimed, flatlining, he would do this sort of sort of like the gesture you do if you were cutting off someone's head, you know, like chopping kind of um, movement. And, um, and then the economy started to grow, wasn't it? And uh, David wanted you to do more of a salute in the comments. Well, look, there is um, a truth about the House of Commons. When you and I were sitting opposite mm. each other and David Cameron and Ed Miliband were exchanging, we could talk to each other and the microphones didn't pick that up. Neither did the press gallery. So I could lean over to you and say, he doesn't know the answers, George. You've got to prepare him better. And you would say, yeah, but he's better than your guy. Um, but of course... No, I'd say, you should be doing the job, Ed. Yeah, well... And you you have... You, there was a look of, yeah, you, yeah, George is right about that. I certainly never thought that. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> However, but David Cameron, of course, had the microphone. Yeah. So he could always say what he wanted to say. And I had no microphone to respond to him. So therefore, the hand gesture was the way in which you could actually tell him what I wanted to say verbally. So whatever he was saying, I would say, I know, David, but it's flatlining. One of the other things about the House of Commons, which is really kind of important for people to understand, is that if you're going to have these moments where you do say something, especially as a backbencher, you have to choose your moment really carefully for when there is a moment of silence, because that's when, I mean, something like Dennis Skinner was brilliant at timing his interventions. But my favourite one to answer Evan's question, there's loads of favourite ones. My favourite one was a Nick Clegg one. He had just done this interview in GQ, where bizarrely, he had boasted that he hadn't slept with more than 30 women in his life. Quite why he wanted to share that with the nation, I have no idea. But there's many things about Nick Clegg I never fully understood at the time. And then in the House of Commons, he was making an intervention, I think at Prime Minister's Questions, and he starts telling a story about um, that he had met a single mother in his constituency last Friday. And in that moment of silence, somebody yelled out from the back benches, 31? <laughs> and, and and it was so well timed, thirty one, and uh, and everybody laughed, and that was uh, the end of Nick Clegg's intervention. It's that almost day. impossible to continue when that happens. Timing, it's, uh... everybody falls about, and look, of course, it was like, obviously a totally inappropriate thing to say, and we should distance ourselves from it. But it was really, really funny and brilliantly timed. Those interventions, if you get them right, can be amazing. Sometimes the structured joke, you, you, I remember, I've been meaning to tell you this all week because I know you'll love this. One of your favourite jokes against me was to compare me to Bungle in Rainbow. Uh, that is right. The uh, children's television show. What? We should play a clip of that joke. It's so good. Have we got the clip? His friends call him George. Yeah. The president calls him Jeffrey. Yeah. But to everyone else, he's just Bungle, Mr. Yeah. Speaker. And uh, I can see... Uh, even an even zippy on the front bench can't stop smiling, Mr. Speaker. Right, but I've got amazing news, which is earlier this week, 
I went to a puppet show with my young children and the person who was doing the puppets, this was on a boat, on a canal boat in London uh, that had been turned into a puppet theatre, the person doing it was the puppeteer behind Zippy in Rainbow and he came out and took a bow at the end. Oh my God. Zippy and, is back. And did he know your name? Did he call you Jeffrey, Gideon, George or what? I don't think any of them were great. <laughs> I always liked Zippy. That was the one I wanted to be. <laughs> well, on that note, as we remember Rainbow, one of the great television shows of the past, um, we've come to the end. Thanks so much for all the questions and comments you've sent in. Remember, you can email one of your questions to us at questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. That's all for this week. See you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.